Okay, guys, thanks for making time for a State of the Podcast meeting. It's been a difficult year for the whole planet, and Get Off My World is no exception. COVID-19, political upheavals, dogs and cats living in quarantine, mass hysteria, blah, 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 blah. And in the midst of all this, we've barely managed to release two episodes. Yeah, you heard me right. Two episodes in 12 months. It's not a podcast anymore, guys. It's a cry for help. I blame Michael Grade. Ten points for a deep cut, Kelvin, but this is one hiatus you can't blame on Michael. Sure, I'm shagging Colin Baker's ex-wife, but that doesn't affect my opinion of Doctor Who Grade. Oh, oh, how about the macra? Let's blame the macra. I'm pretty sure the macra never had sex with Colin Baker's ex-wife. Because there is no such thing as macra. Macra do not exist. There are no macra. Guys, while I applaud your effort to derail the meeting with an extended riff on the Macra Terror, I feel it's my duty to get us back on track with another classic Who reference. It's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. Holy shit, Josh was the Watcher all along! I think he means we're regenerating. From what? Quarantine fatigue? It's no more ridiculous than being shot by Kate O'Mara's fabulous rainbow gun of death. Wait, does that mean after we regenerate, you're going to dress up like Bonnie Langford and slap us around? Because I, I might be on board for that. Ooh, can I request you dress up like Ace instead? See, I have the costume at home. Uh, and- guys, you're missing the point. Josh can't just force us to regenerate like we're all Patrick Troughton and he's Bernard Horsefall. More like you're all Paul McGann and I'm Claire Higgins. I have her costume at home, too. I'm not forcing you to regenerate. I'm giving you a choice. Using elevated Time Lord science, I have prepared this special regeneration elixir. Uh, that's just a six-pack of Smirnoff ice. I think you mean Smirnoff ice of Karn. Don't you see? This change doesn't have to be random. If we drink this elixir, we can be whatever we want to be. A super popular podcast with thousands of downloads per episode. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm up for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Of course, being popular means we need to release episodes at least once a week, focus mostly on the new series, and stop being so old and cranky. Whoa, I can't fucking do that. Man, I've been my whole life to be this cranky. Uh, uh, uh. That brings up another option. We could be a Doctor Who podcast that swears. Cock-sucking Mother right. Yeah. Behind Suck that bitch. shit. Yeah. We could become a ridiculously specific Doctor Who podcast, like the Bendelips Warhead podcast, where we discuss agricultural trade issues from a bandrel perspective, or the Pigbin Josh podcast, where we travel to various rural locations in England and fall off our bicycles, or the Frobisher Fetish podcast, which... Hopefully requires no further explanation. All of those podcasts already exist. <laughs> For real. I've been a guest on all three, and it's called the Frobisher Flemish Podcast. We discuss penguins from a Belgian-Dutch perspective. You know what? We could just say screw Doctor Who and do a Columbo podcast instead. Count me the fuck in. Just one more thing. We could also simply decide to embrace the fact that we're four hardcore Gen X Whovians who love talking about the classic Doctor Who of our youth, not to mention all the books, 
audios, comics, and other weird apocrypha it inspired. You mean regenerate into the same adorably cantankerous podcast we've always been? Only with a more regular release schedule, new discussion rounds, and an updated theme song performed by the internationally renowned electronic pop band The Seva Team? Oh, and a fourth regular co-host named Ariel Pinkerton? Wait, I thought it was Ariel Leaf. This isn't my first regeneration, Josh. <laughs> Let's do it. Drink up, everybody. Well, how do you like it? Ugh, well, thank you. It's good. It'll keep you warm. It's making me giddy. Well, you're doing better than Pat. <laughs> I love you guys so much. A tear, Pat Harrigan? Don't cry. While there's life, there's... No! What's the matter? I don't know. Feels different this time. I don't see what you're in such a state about. Adric? No! Get off my wheel. Welcome to the new and slightly improved regeneration of Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to mostly classic Who and all the weirdness it has inspired, but sometimes the new series too. My name is Joshua. I'm Pat. I'm Ariel. And I'm Kelvin. And we're going to take you through five rounds rapid. Five new rounds rapid, in fact, starting with our newest round... The Curator, and this is designed to be a contrast to our randomizer round, where our episodes are carefully chosen and assembled for maximum intelligent discourse, <laughs> or so we hope. And uh, today's curated episodes revolve around the classic Doctor Who villain, the Mara starting with a discussion of the 1982 episode Kinda, starring Peter Davison. But before we dive in, Pat has a special Buddhist message for us all. <laughs> I do. So I know we're a podcast that can swear now, so I have to say that I fucking love this story. Not just... <laughs> Kinda, but kinda. <laughs> I love it. I, one of the reasons I like it so much is, this, this sounds kind of like a backhanded compliment, but because it's so unusual, so not very Doctor Who-ish, you know what I mean? It's got an unusually complex subtext and a metatext, and uh, it in uses real-world Buddhist ideas and imagery in an unusual way, in a much more sophisticated way than, um, say, uh, Planet of the Spiders. 
Doctor Who fans of a certain age might remember the book Doctor Who, The Unfolding Text by John Tullock and Manuel Alvarado from the mid-80s, which was the first academic treatment of Doctor Who is that I'm aware of. And they spend a great deal of time talking about Kinda, which I probably could have reread for this podcast, but did not. So <laughs> Bold choice. I Bold choice. <laughs> I really bring my second best to get off my world. I know we've had a year to prep all this. And um, so what I've got for you here is a little bit of ideas about Buddhism that enter into the story. And I know very little about Buddhism, and I couldn't really comment on how deeply or well it's adapted, which I leave as an exercise for the reader. But certainly there are some very conspicuous names, the Mara for one thing, um, who is in Buddhist beliefs, as far as I can tell, a kind of death god or anti-enlightenment figure who tempted the Buddha. To my Catholic imagination, that sounds like uh, Satan tempting Christ in the desert. But apparently he could also, the Mara can also be understood as a figure of uncontrolled emotion or fear. And so right at, I guess, at the heart of the Buddhist belief system is this kind of duality about the Mara being a kind of demonic figure, like an anthropomorphized demonic figure, and a spiritual abstraction, which is a theme that's going to kind of go through all three of the stories that we talk about today. Uh, Various other things, which I'll go over very quickly, uh, words like jhana, which is something related to meditation, that's the box in kinda, uh, they call it a powerful kinda healing device. I suspect it generates a frequency far beyond our hearing. Uh, There's quite a bit of talk about the wheel, a sort of semi-reincarnation or regeneration from Pana to Karuna. The planet itself, Diva Loka. Diva is a god in Hindu mythology, and Loka is not the Spanish word meaning crazy lady, but here it's a Sanskrit word meaning world. So world of the gods or realm of the gods in um, the context of the story we're talking about. There's various things about mirrors in Buddhist mythology that are beyond my capability to understand. And that's about what I got. This would have been a great opportunity to get a, a well-informed Buddhist guest onto the program. Um, but none of us, unfortunately, qualify. <laughs> well, thanks. That's been our discussion of Kinda. Uh, <laughs> stick around for our other rounds. No, that's very helpful. I actually did look up nothing about uh, the Buddhist connections, knowing Pat would provide them. So thank you for yeah, not yeah. failing us. I am, I am also guilty of this, yes. But moving into the story itself and picking up from what Pat was saying, that this is such an unconventional Doctor Who story, um, what I find interesting about it is that it uses a lot of conventional Doctor Who tropes, particularly in the first episode, and then, as the story goes, turns them on their heads. We even have the classic Doctor Who scenario where a companion, you know, sprains her ankle. In this case, it's a headache just to get rid of them. Um, I think it was a contract issue Um, actually the show was written before uh she was cast before nissa was cast um so that's why she's absent from this (laughs) yeah they just didn't have the space for her in the story well i think the story benefits from one fewer companion it's nothing about nissa it just means the story's a little tighter and i think we've often talked about the more companions you have sort of the more you have to give room for each of them, and then you lose some story along the way sometimes. Uh, It's very conspicuous that Nyssa just sort of drops out right at the top, but if you think about it, the rest of the cast doesn't have very much to do either. Tegan is essentially unconscious for three episodes, although she does get her psychodrama. They splat Adric among the other colonists, so he's just sort of there. 
but that gives Peter Davison the active role in the story. To him, they immediately attach Dr. Todd as a sort of pseudo-companion, which is a very uh, modern, new-who thing to do. Just get rid of your regular companions and drop a temporary one in. <laughs> By the way, can I say that I find Dr. Todd awfully milfy? Is that something I can say on the podcast <laughs> these days? I, I was just looking up here that there were there's a big list of, of actresses they were considering for Todd, and uh, they include people like Joanna Lumley, Kate O'Mara, Diana Rigg, Rula Lenska, and Twiggy. So they were aiming for MILF. I think they were aiming for MILF, yeah. (laughs) I'm really fascinated by Twiggy. Twiggy would have been interesting. She is a very different look. Yeah. Everyone else you just named and the actress who does play Dr. Todd. She's the reason I show up in callbacks. Either they want someone who looks like everybody else or they want Twiggy. Either they want somebody yeah. who looks like a lot of other people right. or they want me. There's not a whole lot of in-between. <laughs> yeah. But the actual character is interesting. And as Pat said, pairing her up as a pseudo-companion with the Doctor feeds into the matriarchal themes of the episode as well. As in, she quickly establishes herself as a equal with the Doctor and on a number of times uh, shows him up. I'm thinking particularly at the end when the doctor in an uncharacteristic move just decides to grapple with Hindle to get the detonator away from him and fails miserably. And she's the one who shows him the healing box of Jana. It's an unusually feminine story for Doctor Who. It it starts with a mostly male colonist world and a mostly female kinder world. But by the end, it shakes out into essentially all of the antagonists are men and all of the protagonists with the exception of the Doctor, are women. And Adric, who is essentially sidelined and doesn't do anything for the purposes of the story. Well, Adric's interesting because he gets to join the group of men who have been reduced to the state of children. So he's he kind of <laughs> ends up getting a peer group, finally, <laughs> by hanging out with these infantilized men or these men who've been reduced to sort of the positive attributes of childhood uh, once the captain looks into the box and the more evil side of it with Hindle. Yeah, the colonists, if you compare them with some of the hyper-masculine colonists or ship captains from stories like Warrior's Gate or Caves of Androzani, are completely different. They're basically foolish and self-destructive. And as you say, Hindle is especially boyish. One billion trillion percent. <laughs> The spoiled little brat who promises not to open the box and then does that immediately as soon as he gets in. (laughs) You can't mend people. You know, speaking of lines that we really, really... I mean, there are a whole lot of them throughout this whole episode. um, But I was really fond of the phrase, dark places of the inside. Um, And I think that there's a, a real deepness in this episode about the mind and the torture of of the mind and the idea of being locked within one's own mind. Um, I remember watching these as a child. I I want to say Snake Dance is the first one I remember, but I really think the truth is that it's the first one that frightened me. But this one, I, I remember as a little kid watching the scenes inside Tegan's head and thinking they were sort of eerily beautiful and being able to buy immediately that that's what the inside of one's head might look like, all dark and metallic and glowy, and and being really struck by Tegan fighting against herself. That was strong for the silliness of some of the 
rest of the episode, um, those moments were particularly like effective for me. Yeah, those scenes were really interesting because this design is so striking. And then the duality where they have the seemingly silly scene at the beginning of Nyssa and Adric. I don't know what game they're playing, checkers or chess, or I I, I can't remember. But then those dark figures playing the game in the Mara dreamscape is just such a a nice touch and immediately establishes that duality theme they're going to be playing with throughout the rest of the four episodes. And weirdly, that sort of metallic quality that they have made me think back or ahead to Silver Nemesis when she makes the copy of herself that's this sort of weird glowingly silver figure and i suddenly wanted to make all sorts of connections that didn't actually exist but (laughs) (laughs) i really like when they can create an effect a a low budget effect that is incredibly viable to me and tegan's head is a great example of one of those john nathan turner comes in for a lot of deserved criticism but uh this was an era of the show where they did start experimenting with something beyond pure literalism doctor who is really in the old style for the most part of just kind of like boys adventure fiction where what you see is what you get we read in some psychological complexity to the characters generally speaking but you don't really see the presentation of reality in unusual ways Uh, the only earlier example that really comes to mind is warrior's gate and that was just from the previous season Uh, and then later on you'll get some oddball stuff like, as you say, Silver Nemesis or or Ghost Light in particular. Or Greatest Um, Show in the Galaxy. This story actually went through three uh, script editors. It was commissioned by Christopher Bidmead, and then Anthony Root worked on it, but it actually got produced by Eric Sayward, which might explain why it's more experimentally, I guess. It's considerably less bloodthirsty than most of Sayward's stuff, I gotta say. Yeah. There is no death in Kinda, except we assume the two missing... Oh, no, the the old... uh, Pana. Yeah, the old shaman woman dies, kind of. Sort of. (laughs) But her spirit transfers over to the other um, whose name I can't remember. So, depending on how you look at it, it's death, it's rebirth, it's continuation... And then the three male colonists, they disappear, Roberts and the two others. We assume that they're dead. Yeah. That's never confirmed. I think part of that is a scripting thing. In all three of these Mara stories that we're going to be talking about, particularly in Kinda, I think that the writers are a bit hesitant or a bit skittish to kill off a lot of people when it's essentially the TARDIS crew that's responsible for all of these situations in the first place. Tegan's the one that touches the harmonic thing, a chromatic structure in eccentric eccentric sequence. And she starts this whole ball rolling. It will go through three stories. So we don't want to have it in the back of our mind that the doctor and his friends are responsible for all these people getting killed, I think. Speaking about responsible, she basically just passes out in the forest and then everybody just takes off. Like, nobody seems super concerned about the fact that she's just decided to lay down and become unconscious, and they don't really seem to go back for her or even think about her for quite some time. Um, I hope if I just lay down in the forest, one of them comes for me a lot sooner than that. Well, I mean, if you have to choose between Tegan and Adric to keep an eye on, I I would err on Adric, in all fairness. He's the guy who's going to probably end up causing more problems. I mean, he almost massacred yes, the, uh, the Kinda with the armor machine. That's true. I just assume he's going to do that whether I'm watching him or not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
there's that moment with the survival suit where the actor who plays Eris is in the um, mock survival suit they've built out of sticks and twigs, and one of the little mini explosives is like flaming on the bottom of it, and he's in the background of the entire scene, and you just keep seeing the actor's eyes going down to that fire on the bottom. <laughs> And he's like, oh, I hope this shot is over quick. Uh, uh, and he's, you can see him. He's just totally trying to stay in character. And in the moment, he just keeps, oh, no, is the fire creeping up yet? Because <laughs> he's barely wearing any clothes. Uh, it would make me nervous, too. There's yeah, some... generally a thing to avoid. <laughs> um, okay, I've, I've got kind of a, a long-winded thing here. Uh, when I initially saw Kinda when I was much younger... I didn't like it at all. I have I have become much, much more fond of it over the years. But when I first saw it, I didn't really get it. I was confused by it. I didn't really get the stuff that was inside Tegan's mind. I, I actually thought the doctor came off kind of dumb in it. Or, like, or an like, idiot. <laughs> he, he He's like completely baffled by the sleight of hand coin trick thing, which I found really strange. And, and I really disliked Hindle who was just sort of crazy because he has to be crazy. Uh, they're like, like he, he, he's like blitheringly insane for like no reason. And in a science fictional universe, I kept thinking like, well, there has to be some reason why he's insane. Like some, some psychic forces acting on him or something. And it's like, no, he's just like power mad. And he builds a toy city. And it got kind of magnified in my mind because it seemed like every time I got back home from college or something, and it's like, Oh great. I can watch doctor who again. And it's like, for whatever reason, it always seemed to wind up being Kinda. So I, I developed this kind of weird resentment for Kinda <laughs> that that it doesn't deserve. You know, uh, looking back on it uh, now and rewatching it, I, I do like it quite a bit. I just wish they had a little more uh, motivation still for Hindle. Like, uh, clearly he's kind of power mad and he thinks he should be in charge. But I, I, I wish that was like a little more coherent or something and not... A toddler tantrum thing that he's doing. I think they used the term nervous breakdown at one point yeah. about Hindle. And it struck me as this might be the first time Classic Who, unless I'm forgetting something, deals even in a slight way with actual mental illness. Because what I always took away from this is that there isn't a science fiction explanation is because he's on this new planet and he's actually having legit human mental issues that are then exacerbated by the kinda and his interactions with them and um there's almost a suggestion that his mental disarray somehow is what gives him this access to control the kinda so easily on a symbolic level i think there are two strands that go into kindle's madness i'm not sure whether it is justified in terms of the narrative of the story but there's the british colonial background in the first place this all is the british in india essentially, is in the background of all of these things. Their colonial outfits indicate that entire thing. There's that scene where Hindle is sitting in the chair with the two Kenda men kneeling next to him. Yeah. Which is like the lowest rent version of that old imperial or royal imagery that you'd see in any Azillion paintings or movies or whatever. And it's not only kind of indicates what Hindle's background imagination is like i'm the ruler over these primitives but also how low rent it is how cheap it looks like here's a situation where the cheapness of doctor who really works for a psychological <laughs> effect you know it just looks so terrible and then the other strand is 
the Kinda world itself, Divaloka, he talks about bacteria and chaos and change and decay, fire and acid, acid and fire, trees, plants, spores and things blocking out the light. He has this panic about the natural world there and the chaos of everything. When the doctor suggests, leave him to the mercy of the trees, and Hindle says, no, no, the trees have no mercy. <laughs> <laughs> funniest weirdest line in this era of doctor who well he needs things clean and neat and orderly and he comes to a place where you know women are given the highest judgment and he begins to lose the people he's able to order around and i think he slowly becomes outnumbered by the the grass and trees themselves let alone all the other people and so i i think that he just can't cope he can't adapt he's pitched weirdly higher than the rest of the people in the show who are mainly acting kind of naturalistically in a Doctor Who style, but he's like Claudius in Hamlet. Do you turn the light on? Turn the light on. He's just freaking out every moment. I can see why Kelvin, as a, as a younger person, that would just grate the hell out of you. Yeah, it just, it, yeah, he seemed like really out of left field to me, but. Uh... For me, I think the script and the performances do a good job telling you that Hindle is just farther along in this destructive mental state. And the reason I say that is because Doctor Who is full of shows where there are five actors and they're all doing a different show at the same time. And I never <laughs> felt that way about this. I, I felt like he was directed and it was intentional that he was close to snapping. Because that's how like Dr. Todd, uh, the scientist, treated him too, with kid gloves. Like, well, that's Hindle. <laughs> We don't sit with them in the break room. <laughs> yeah. But one odd thing, uh, the guy who plays Sanders, he was nominated for Best Actor once. Not for this. Not for, no, no, not for this. <laughs> uh, I got I got to look this up. Richard Todd, he was nominated, he, he, nominate, he was nominated for an Oscar for a, a 1949 movie called The Hasty Heart. Oh. Everybody's got a hasty heart. <laughs> Which uh, <laughs> is uh, a movie that is remembered by uh, no one, <laughs> basically. But uh, that's kind of interesting. There was an actual Oscar nominee on Doctor Who. I think he does a great job and he kicks off a series of 80s colonial explorer characters. Yeah, uh, yeah. Be because there's also uh, Captain Cook in The Greatest Show of the Galaxy, um, Fen Cooper in Ghost Light. Uh, the whole 80s are awash with this trope. <laughs> well, he does a great job going from the amazingly stiff upper lip British military guy to this sort of childlike dude. So in addition to him... If you go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole, like most of the people in Kinda are really well-known British actors, uh, many of whom I've never heard of. But uh, I do want to single out Mary Morris as Pana. Not only is she super great, but she's also super great in Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner as one of the few women number twos. She's about oh. 67 years old here in Kinda, but she looks like at least 100 years old. <laughs> But no, she's terrific. She had a long, long career, and uh, she's wonderful. You know, it's funny. I was kind of eye-rolling a little bit at acting during one of the many Doctor Who's I was watching. We're doing the key to time at home right now. 
And uh, my honey kind of uh, bemonished me by reminding me that so many of the people that we're seeing are like famous British stage personas as well. So some of the big acting is actors translating over from stage to film and just not really knowing how to tone it down. If we saw these performances from 20 feet away, we might feel very differently than with the camera stuck up in their face. Yeah, and I think they're deliberately pitching it high for what they consider to be a children's show, too. But now I feel like we should talk about the um, pink snake in the room. (laughs) I suppose we're that kind of podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the pink snake in the room. Apparently they had a whole other effect in mind for the Mara, and they filmed it, and there was some kind of technical fault in the shooting of it where it was unusable. So at the last minute, they had to build this super big, terrible puppet. Yes, that's absolutely what I read as well. Because there just wasn't any time to do anything else. They just wanted to blame it on someone. So they blamed it (laughs) on the puppet maker, those assholes. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, there was like a big lens flare issue or something where it just, it screwed the whole effect up. Well, they should have just waited until 2004. The lens flare would have been huge. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) I will say that if if you have the... DVD, the CGI snake is pretty well done and it's cut in really well. There's some uh, new special effects on the Doctor Who DVDs that really look out of place. Obviously, it doesn't look like Doctor Who of the 80s, but it integrates really well into the scene and takes the distracting snake puppet out of what is otherwise a fantastic story. So it's a rare time in which I recommend turning on the new special effects. (laughs) <laughs> but is it that they're good or just that we are so relieved not to be looking at that pink snake anymore? No, that's actually good. I'm going to be contrarian and say that I prefer the original snake. Partly my relationship with Doctor Who has been so long that that was such a big problem in fandom in the 80s, the snake. It just looked so ridiculous. It was so obviously phallic with the weird color and all that. But Watching it this time through, it seems all very much of a piece with the other kind of pantomime, stagey stuff that's going on in Kenda. Like the very fake, yeah. the very fake jungle, the the colonists kind of purpose built uh, environment there, where a lot of the electronic displays are actually just marker on whiteboard. Yeah. Uh, the really kind of ginned up weird suit everything looks very artificial to me so the snake just seems kind of like it if you'll forgive me a natural extension of that (laughs) Uh, and i feel like when we talk about snake dance they kind of self-parody that a little bit with Mm -hmm. the little snakes on a stick that we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but i guess thinking of doctor who as a media property and not like as a serious narrative that's being presented to me which once you see a story three or four or five or six or eight times, like I've seen Kenda, you start to admire the the interior of it, I guess, as opposed to some of the more embarrassing presentations like the snake. I, I totally agree with that, Pat. But I also think, given the fact that that snake has been such a, uh, a roadblock uh, for people to actually enjoy what is fantastic about this, I, I think having that option is great. Absolutely right. This is an underrated episode of Doctor Who. Hands down a classic of the 80s, but I mean, I think this is an all-time Doctor Who classic in my book. And and I think something like The Snake can be a big stumbling block. You don't want to trip over I I, I was a little 
surprised to find out that when it first aired, it was not well received. Well, Doctor Who magazine, I guess. I mean, I'm not sure how much they count as an authority, but they hated all three of them, like with a pretty strong vengeance. Um, I would say that having watched them as a trilogy, watched and listened to them as a trilogy, I appreciate Kinda far more than I did as a single episode. So for our second curated round of this episode, we're going to talk about the natural follow-up to Kinda, Snake Dance. This is also written by Christopher Bailey and directed by Fiona Cumming, uh, who directed four Doctor Who stories. They're all quite well done. Uh, she had been a longtime production assistant uh, at the BBC and worked on lots of Doctor Who during the 60s and 70s. So it's a very professional production, I think, um, both on the writing and on the directing side. Although I have to disagree with my co-host Ariel here and and suggest that I've never really cared for Snake Dance all that much because I've I viewed it through the lens of Kinda and I always found it kind of a slightly inferior sequel. Well, I have to say that for me, the thing that always stood out was that I was never a particularly big Tegan fan, but I sure like her as a villain. I yeah. thought her voice, her mannerisms, her overall acting just went up like 5,000 points when she played a villain. Um, and so I think that's part of what was really striking for me. You know, a, a, another thing to keep in mind is, you know, when you're a child, that kind of a switch from somebody you thought you've known all this time to this sort of villain, it's, it's horrifying. And so it's really interesting to see as I go through and watch a lot of these episodes again, what sort of childhood part of myself lingers on. You know, as soon as Tegan swaps over in this, I, I could feel myself just sort of cringe and be like, oh, she's going to be all scary for the rest of this. You know, I can watch <laughs> a horror movie these days and I don't even blink, but I, I feel that old sort of terror of almost the betrayal of somebody you knew watching Snake Dance. What I enjoy about Snake Dance is that it is Bailey taking a lot of the same themes and ideas from Kinda and just squeezing them through a much more conventional Doctor Who story. Obviously, it is not going to stand up against Kinda. Because Kinda was first, Kinda is far more unconventional, it has far more depth to it. But I find it really fascinating to see uh, uh, Bailey's talents utilized in creating something much more conventional. And I think if you weren't constantly comparing it to Kinda, this would be be better regarded in fandom as a run-of-the-mill but clever witty episode with stellar performances from a guest cast absolutely i also think there's still a lot of weird little quirky things in here to love you know the puppet show for example that you see at one point is <laughs> that's brilliant great. absolutely yeah. the creepy moment tegan looks in the mirror and she's got the like skull head on top of her body again you know really great small use of what effects they had at the time. I mean, I just feel like there's a lot of really delicious little things uh, throughout this episode. And, and just so it seems like I'm not completely sour on Snake Dance, I agree with all of that, what was just said. Not only the guest cast, the quality of the guest cast, but those presentations of the Mara as media and mass culture in particular, uh, which is different than Kenda, and it, it, the Mara is now expressing itself in different media. It's got the Punch and Judy show, which is, to my mind, is the highlight of Snake Dance, but also the carnival and also the, the festival, the remembrance of the defeat of the Mara. This idea of the Mara as an expression of mass culture 
is something that Mark Platt is going to run with in his audio, Cradle of the Snake, which we'll be talking about in the next uh, installment of this uh, episode. Literally the only thing I remembered from Snake Dance when I rewatched it was Tegan's terrible outfit, which is surprising because Nissa's is really terrible. Oh, do not let JNT dress you. Oh, my God. Um, no, oh, no. But no, no, no. So, so Martin Clunes, who's in this, uh, uh, in a very, very early role, he actually cannot stand if you bring this show up at yeah. all because he finds his outfit so humiliating that he doesn't oh, want to talk the end? about it at all. The, 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 yeah. yeah, the, the, the ceremony costume. With the blue it's like clouds and the yellow highlights. Yeah. There is an album cover where Sun Ra is wearing that. <laughs> <laughs> Sun Ra reference, nice. Well, Sun Ra um, has the excuse but, of being from Saturn. So. I mean, I can kind of <laughs> I can kind of headcanon Nissa's weird outfit as she is an alien trying to dress like a human. What, what makes that scene worse is that she is asking the doctor what he thinks about it. Yeah. And he is clearly avoiding telling her. <laughs> I love the tattoo. I remember that also as a kid. The idea mm. that like the tattoo could come alive and transfer yeah. the, the Mars power over or whatever. Because tattoos were sort of becoming more public or whatever when I was a kid. You know, I mean, obviously I was 10 in, what, 88? But it was still sort of subversive. And so I'd see one and I'd be like, ooh, I wonder what that means about that. Or like, what spirit is inside them? Or what what are they going to set loose on the world? Or (laughs) deep thoughts of a 10-year-old. But uh, uh, I really liked that as a a notion. Yeah, well, Mm -hmm. here within the culture, too, of course, the tattoos are all of a piece with the carnival atmosphere, the hall of mirrors, the the carnies, that kind of thing. It wouldn't be that normal people in the world of Doctor Who wouldn't necessarily get tattoos at the time. It would the huckster guy and the, the bored noble men or whatever Martin Clune's character is. Rich snot pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah rich snot pants. I never quite figured yeah. out what his role was in the society. Like, is he the prince, sort of? Like, or... He's I don't think he has guy. any status. He's just the son of someone important, and so yeah. he's treated well. We never even see his sick dad, right? He's referred yeah. to a few times, but... He's that, you know, younger generation of old aristocratic wealth. Mm-hmm. Again, the idea of the tattoo is pretty wonderful on him, too, because the, one of the better scenes in Snake Dance is the doctor trying to force him to show what's on his arm. Yeah, He has his arms covered up, and that's unusual. And that would be the case for someone like him who would never have a tattoo in the first place. And, of course, mm-hmm. in, the, in the context of the story, it's much more dire than... Yeah, that. kind of getting... Back to my point, like, I remembered so little of this story that watching it again, it, it kind of it was like, oh my gosh, this is a completely new Doctor Who story. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Wow. I wound up really liking it, maybe because of that, it feels brand new quality, totally peculiar to my <laughs> experience and memory. But no, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was legitimately scary. You know, you know this sort of society that's, you can't quite figure out the technology level of it. It's like sort of renaissance but they have knowledge of other worlds. They're a part of some multi-planet government system, apparently, but it's, you know, like technologically kind of collapsed a little or something. I, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I do like the spoiled callow youth getting possessed thing. Uh, I just really liked it. I feel like that's a reoccurring one in the Doctor Who, actually, 
is the the spoiled rich kid who gets possessed <laughs> or killed or kidnapped or something to show that you shouldn't be a shitty spoiled rich kid. Yeah. We never see whether he learns a lesson because the show ends so abruptly. There's no denouement whatsoever. Uh, that's what I was really missing because that's one of my favorite things about Kinda is that we go back and revisit the characters who've been traumatized. This does did have uh, like one of my favorite Doctor Who's supporting characters in the role of officious skeptic. <laughs> was that the director? The director, like, yeah, look, we have to stop this festival. Oh, certainly, we'll do it immediately. <laughs> and just totally blows him off like that. Uh, yeah, certainly some strange person comes in here. We'll go, of course, we'll just cancel it. Yes. He was pretty great, that actor. I did love that part, yeah. But you know, the I've... scene itself is really well written by Bailey, and he does some clever things by putting the doctor in a position where he is visiting this planet to tell him this terrible thing's going to happen, but apparently people show up all the time to tell these people that the Mara is returning. So the doctor's used to getting all this attention, uh, but he's just one doomsaying person in a long line of them, and they just shrug him off. I thought that was a lot of fun, and his exasperation was great from Peter Davison. He's totally neutralized, at least in the first two or two and a half episodes. The Doctor just comes in there and blabs and people are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, okay, <laughs> and now we're going to throw you in jail for a little while. There is kind of a pattern with uh, Fifth Doctor stories of the of the Fifth Doctor being like particularly powerless. Yes. yes like, like where he's just, like like no one listens to him. Like he has no access to technology or knowledge that he needs. And, and There's this neat quality that you can read into it like the doctor still remembers being tom baker and being able to sweep into a room and just take command of the situation and he keeps trying again and again and again and he's getting and they, ignored the same way yeah. his fan base that still wishes that he was the fourth <laughs> oh. doctor. no i know i think it's so unfair i think the fifth doctor is, is so unfairly treated and overburdened with companions much like our current doctor but i digress no, that was a nice double barrel thing of Josh's psychologizing and your metatextualizing. That was that was pretty good. <laughs> you know, thought about it in either of those terms before. Uh, Pat brought up the prison scene, and I just want to talk about how Bailey pretty much acknowledges that Doctor Who trope of let's just throw him in jail, and he turns it into exposition prison which I think is really brilliant because the doctor just played out says, well, we're going to be here for a while. Let's talk this out. I mean, he doesn't say it exactly, but he essentially <laughs> guides Nissa through this complicated discussion of the yeah, we're, uh, Mara we're the backstory. Era, we're in the era where they junk the sonic screwdriver here. Only an episode or two earlier. It's destroyed in the visitation. Uh, also, uh, continuing my theme from Kinda, once again, no one is killed in this story. A lot of people seem to probably come out of it with some pretty terrible and probably permanent mental scarring. Yeah. Uh, the poor fortune teller lady and uh, Elizabeth Sladen's husband, Brian Miller, the guy who plays the, the showman, they're in the barrel for a while, but nobody is actually killed. Oh, that carnival barker guy was yep. clearly traumatized. To be oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. The most unfortunate thing in the entire series is I think it's the th part three cliffhanger where they give Nyssa a entirely unnecessary scream that is not fitting at all but with she's a woman in doctor who josh she <laughs> must scream but i don't remember them making nissa do a classic doctor who scream outside of this episode and maybe, maybe the only one 
for all of Kinda and Snake Dance, all of the cliffhangers suck. Uh, especially in Kinda, they're very abstract because they don't follow the usual beats of Doctor Yes, Kinda. I love that about them, though, Pat. <laughs> I mean, Kinda more than Snake Dance. I think Snake Dance are the real conventional tacked-on Doctor Who cliffhangers. Uh, but I think Kinda does a lot of interesting subversions. Uh, I'm going to derail the conversation just really quickly to mention them because I think two of them are very similar in that they double back in an interesting way that has to be intentional. There's the box of Jana uh, where it's a scary cliffhanger, don't open it, and then it's a jack-in-the-box. Yep. And then it's like, no, wait, it is the scary cliffhanger we thought it was. <laughs> and they go back to the scary thing. They do the same thing when the old uh, woman dies. Uh, it looks like she's dead. And then it comes back and the doctor goes, oh, often in a meditative trance, uh, the body does something that looks like death. Oh, no, wait, she's dead. <laughs> so it's like they they scare you, say it's okay, and then go back to scaring you. I, I like them. Interesting. Yeah, I had I sort of ascribed them as being the dissonance between uh, the conventional Doctor Who storytelling style and the broader kind of sweeping literary style that Christopher Bailey clearly wanted to yeah. tell. But uh, but maybe there are some nuances there that I missed. Oh, and then there's no nuance at all, but I love it, to Hindle just screaming, I have the power of life and death over all of you! This <laughs> just burned into my brain as a child. A billion trillion percent. <laughs> can I also but back mention, to Snake Dance. Yeah, can I also mention that the, the ritual at the end of Snake Dance, these people are clearly fans of English modernist poetry, because <laughs> the very first thing is, I offer you fear in a handful of dust which is directly from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And uh, the other parts of the ceremony are not, uh, and have no antecedents as far as I'm aware. But, uh, but hey, big T.S. Eliot fans. Good, good. <laughs> I do want one of those segmented snake-on-a-stick toys, though. Do they sell them at the state fair? Because I would buy a lot. They, it, it sounds like something they would have at the state fair. I used to have this little box um, that was made out of stone, and when you pulled the lid back, a little snake would come out of it. It was a little, there was a little coil that it was somehow connected to the lid, and I feel like I picked that up. I know I picked it up abroad. I want to say I picked it up in Africa, but I'm not sure. Um, but I, I loved that thing. Ariel, I've never seen that tattoo on your forearm before. What is that? <laughs> Okay, next up, we have a round called The Revisitation. This is where we're going to look at uh, the Doctor Who story and some of the other media, as in not the TV show itself, that brought back some old character or monster or plotline from the old TV series. And we are going to, of course, because this is the Mara episode, we are going to discuss The Cradle of the Snake, which was part of Big Finish's monthly audio range, and it has the Fifth Doctor, Tegan, Nissa, and Turlo running again into the Mara. And uh, it was written by Mark Platt and directed by Barnaby Edwards. And uh, this was recorded in 2010, I believe. Yep. I listened to Cradle of the Snake before I rewatched Kinda and Snake Dance, and so Ooh. it was a weird temporal experience for me. I didn't remember that Snake Dance occurred during that very, very short period of time when it's only 
five Nyssa and Tegan. There are only two stories where that occurs, Ark of Infinity and Snake Dance, and then in the very next story they pick up Turlo. Turlo is still around after they have picked up Nyssa again after Terminus, where she ostensibly leaves. And that's a big finish thing, because normally, if you were just watching the TV series, it would be Tegan and Nyssa for two episodes, then Turlo comes in for two episodes, and then Nyssa leaves, and then it's Tegan and Turlo from then on. But they finesse that in the big finish stories, where they somehow, at some point, and Josh, you can tell us about this, they pick Nyssa back up again. So it's the three of them, but it's after Terminus and Enlightenment. That's pretty much essentially it. The only odd thing, and there's nothing about it in this episode is Nyssa is supposed to be 50 or 60 years old. So when they first pick her up, there's this shock to Tegan particularly, who um, suddenly meets her old friend again, who's 40 years older than she was. But that's really weird because at one point in this, Nyssa gets like all dolled up and is like talking about how glamorous she looks and stuff. Is she just like trying to hold on to being young Nyssa or something? Um, People over the age of 20 can be attractive. No, no, no. I know. I'm attractive. I know that. But it's very much played off as if she's this young, needy... Uh, there's nothing in this story that tells me that she's... But that's great. when the Mara takes her over. Um, and so yeah, I, I think that's, that's where that's, where that's coming that. from. But what Ariel's saying, though, it goes deeper than that, too, because it's not just when the Mara takes her over, but Mark Platt, who is a very, very good writer, but seems to have maybe something against Nita here, because at two points, the Doctor insults her. She's a prig. She's a prude. And then at one point, she insults herself once she's taken over from the Mara. So mm-hmm. this is... A weirdly metatextual thing about Sarah Sutton's character in the TV show, but nothing in that would I would never have dreamed that she was supposed to have been a 40 or 50 year old woman who had had a lifetime of experience taking care of lepers on Terminus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, normally I, I think of Nyssa as pretty intelligent and, and quite capable. Um, and here she just comes off kind of very prima donna and stuck up and certainly that's what people tell her she's oh like. yes exactly yeah. yeah yeah i mean platt makes a number of uh meta comments throughout this um that's not new to a mark platt script but i think the difference for me at least is i think this felt like a first draft that needed at least two to three more drafts i found it to just be a long rambling mess with so many potentially great ideas that are picked up and then dropped and i just really don't like it <laughs> I didn't like it much either. I um, well, well, a couple things. One, I'm kind of bugged by the alien planet that just happens to be exactly like modern day Earth. I'm guessing that the Big Finish people told him to do that. This stinks of yeah. Big Finish attempting to do a spare parts for the Mara. Uh, yeah. And we've talked about spare parts here before, and that was written by Mark Platt. And I don't think it's anywhere near as successful as as that origin story. But that was one of the things that people enjoyed about spare parts is that they went back in time to Mondas and it looked a lot like mid-century Earth. Yeah. Well, there's certain Mark Platt is certainly picking up on hints left in the last two stories. There's a very Hindu or Indian element of this entire thing. There are the Naga Hills, Tuk Tuk's, Untouchables. So maybe a kind of more broadly conceived Indianism than the Buddhism of Kinda. 
also there's a kind of odd Caribbean element. With, uh, I forget the character's name, but he's the the wise old tribesman guy. And he talks Dada about, de Saka. Dada de Saka. And, and, and now that you mention it, that the name does sound very Haitian voodoo. It kind of makes sense if you squint at it, you know, but uh, it doesn't, I think, really gel. I was too busy just kind of cringing at his voice. There's, you know, when I'm watching really old Who, I forgive it for being really old Who, but there was such a stereotype witch doctory yeah. thing happening, and it was so constant. And I, it, it, it's was really so dangerous to put in these sort of traditional indigenous societies into into these things because they always come off very wrong. <laughs> and that element is sidestepped in both Kinda and Snake Dance. Oh my goodness, yeah. The Kinda are incredibly, incredibly white. Yeah. They, they might have a, a kind of element of indigenous culture, but there's nothing cringeworthy necessarily about them because they're all played by white actors or it's sort of vaporized. But they don't try to talk in that sort of weird... They don't talk. ...mystical kind of way. For the most part. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's an interesting idea to see uh, the Mara story set in a place with more advanced technology but nothing much is done with that until the end when they turn the camera monitors on the snake in a little homage to kinda um there's the whole indigenous people seems like it's trying to do a callback to the colonial critiques of kinda but doesn't really go anywhere yeah. um, other than just uh, it's thrown out into the mix in a way that i found really unsatisfying but i will get right to the chase and say what i think the script really does poorly is Tegan. Cause to me, it feels like if you revisit the Mara and this is like the third in a trilogy, you should be giving some space to Tegan uh, to have some closure as, as the nominal victim of the Mara. And instead it goes for a sort of B movie demon possession game where the Mara goes from person to person and we all get to see them have fun being evil and and Peter Davison playing evil is fantastic so I was disappointed with that and then I thought oh you know what they're probably doing is one by one they're going to remove Tegan's potential saviors and Tegan is going to be left to finally confront yeah. the Mara I thought and that's like, where it was yeah going. and nope they she just gets sidestepped by the deus ex machina whatever Bala or whoever he is that shows up at the end and then it's over. I think the thing that really was kind of the nail in the coffin for me for this story is that the Mara taking over the Doctor and, and Nyssa should have been way more scary than it is. They're not even really evil exactly. They're just kind of nasty and annoying. Yeah, I mean, this is one that, you know, honestly, I gave up on pretty quickly because I got to the, oh, it's going to possess the doctor long before they revealed that. And whenever I make a jump like that, then I'm just kind of irritated throughout. Hmm. Um, but I do have to point out a couple of little things that I liked because, well, I'm that person and I'm pretty sure that's why I'm here. But uh, Mr. Unaffected Guy, Mr. Guy who lives in the zoo, what's his name? Balaka or something? Like yeah, that. yeah. So has anybody ever read or seen Being There? Yeah, yeah. He absolutely reminds me of him. 
Like it feels like almost an homage character to him. He's always lived in the zoo. He's he's this person who just speaks sort of light and truth and and cuts through all of the the manipulation and nastiness of of the Mara. He is the light to the Mara is dark. Blah blah blah. So I really enjoyed that. It's a tradition um, of a spiritual. Yeah, idiot. yeah. That was that was something. A spiritual I, idiot. Absolutely. That's exactly admit, the way to look at it. Yeah, I admit I probably wasn't listening very close to this, but I never quite understood what the deal was with this menagerie was that stuff that like the mind crystal just sort of it was extra mind vomit yeah yeah yeah. like Like, oh here's a weird mashed up animal that came out some for some reason yeah it was like the the thing you weren't supposed to think about i i tried to think of the thing that wasn't terrifying again i kind of missed this but was balaka supposed to be like another product of the mind crystal itself yes yes like someone thought up this just nice innocent guy he is somehow the balance to the mara which is a, a new concept that we have not heard about before in the previous two stories or up to that point in this third one. But it gets us back to sort of the, some Zen notion. Yeah, it gets a little bit more, uh, you know, less Buddhist and more uh, Taoist, you know, yin-yang stuff. I, I, now we're getting into very hazy areas that I, I don't trust myself in. But, but it, getting back to an earlier point that you had talked about, Josh, about this being a third part of the trilogy, there's two things I want to say about that. One is... You're right that there's no closure for Tegan, but more importantly, I think from a narrative point of view, it doesn't really feel like the third part of the trilogy. It feels like another point along the line to me. So previously, the Mara had taken over Tegan twice. Now it uh, it's a natural progression for it to take over the other parts of the TARDIS crew, including the Doctor. The elements about mass media that were... Uh, in a kind of folkloric context in snake dance that are now in a mass media 20th or 21st century context with a light television news show. So it's continuing this idea of the Mara in the directions that it had been established in the previous uh, couple of stories, but it doesn't pull it back anywhere. It doesn't circle it back anywhere. And that's what I was, for a long time, I was thinking that that's what it was going to do, that this was going to be a kind of bootstrap paradox thing where the doctor had brought the Mara back to Manusa in the first place and that the Mara has no beginning and has no end. Like a snake eating its own tail. Exactly. (laughs) The the really present image and metaphor, uh, if you think about that, but they don't they don't actually close that circle. They don't actually say that the Doctor leaves the Mara on Manusa for it to start again, and that it's part of its whole cycle. No, it just kind of, again, it's not a it's not a trilogy, it's not a circle, it just continues on the line. It just continues further and further kind of developing sequels to itself. I think it underserves the potential of the direction that the Mara story could have gone. I mean, I think from moment to moment, I enjoyed it more than the rest of the co-hosts. I thought it was entertaining. People really, really people really chewed the scenery here. I thought it was well. Uh, Suburban yeah. Karen Cop was pretty great. Suburban Karen Cop. Was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a number of small moments that I really loved in the script, despite my complaints about the big picture. As a Minnesotan, I really loved that Nissa pointed out um, how much she didn't like Manusa Nice, essentially. Uh, <laughs> When she says everyone's too nice, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> they landed on Minnesota. Um, but there's also a, another great Mark Platt slash Mark Strickson in-joke here. And I don't know if it popped out to you guys, uh, but it's the whole scene when Turlow knows how to handle the snake. And then he's narrating how to handle the snake in this 
very slow, calm documentary filmmaker voice. And um, Mark Strickson is a director of nature documentaries, including a number of very popular ones with um, the crocodile hunter, including like the, the world's 10 deadliest snakes. And so his whole uh, CV is animal documentary. So I, I took that as very intentional on Platt's part to give Turlow the big snake taming scene. Utterly missed that. That's wonderful. That yeah, I didn't. I, I knew he became like a big uh, environmental guy, but I, I guess I wasn't aware he was a director of documentaries like that. That killed me. And just the whole idea that as soon as the Mara shows up, everyone goes, "Uh oh, Turlo's here. He, he is Mara fodder." <laughs> <laughs> Instantly, he must be the one infected. <laughs> one trust. <laughs> I mean, a couple other things about uh, Cradle of the Snake. It's interesting in terms of its position as the third part of a trilogy, which, again, I don't think completes the loop, but just kind of continues going in the directions that the first two stories had been done. It completes the movement that you can already see in Snake Dance of changing the Mara from a spiritual abstraction into an actual villain, where here you can hear the Mara articulate its goals and express its personality and the you know, kind of cackling Doctor Who sort of way. I don't like that at all. I much preferred the weird dark places of the inside stuff from the the beginning of Kinda. And as it becomes more personified, it becomes much more of a conventional sort of Doctor Who villain. And it's not much different from a, the Black Guardian or the Master or somebody. Again, we have a fairly low body count, although this is the first on-screen death we have, or on-audio death we have. Dr. Karim dies. The snake actually beats him, uh, which is something that the giant snakes from the two previous stories did not do. So that's an innovation that Mark Platt has brought to the Mara, <laughs> that it actually physically kills you. It doesn't just damage you mentally or spiritually. And then the other third kind of interesting development of the Mara that I found is that when they go into the crystal, you it seems that Nissa's consciousness has been completely removed from her body. They talk to Nissa when she's in the crystal, and she's like, oh, what is my body doing outside of this? I hope it's not doing anything too terrible. And that's different, again, from Kinda, where Tegan is clearly present within her body at the entire time. I climbed a tree and I dropped apples on his head. She's embarrassed by that. So this is, again, a much more kind of Doctor Who. I am taking over your body. I'm displacing your personality and consciousness to some other place. It's not a yeah. part of you that it is, like, swollen or spiritually rotten or something. It's we've taken you out of your body and, uh, and taken you over. A new thing has taken you over. Again, I think a very disappointing version of the Mara. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the moment where they're all turned into sheep. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, there's a lot of stuff in here. None of it very good. And we have come to our final round, which is aptly titled, It's the End, in which each of us are going to give a little summary on our thoughts of our little Mara trilogy and our look into what's coming for our lovely little new, not new podcast in the future. 
uh, as some of you know, but of course our listeners do not, unless they are also fans of autobiographical storytelling and go to the Minnesota Fringe, and I don't think there's a whole <laughs> lot of crossover happening there. I could be wrong. Um, but I have a mother who has multiple personalities. So getting to see uh, any episode of, of any show, really, in which somebody is possessed always fascinated me as a child. Um, but it was further brought on um, watching Kinda, the struggle of her against herself. Um, there was uh, one of my mother's personalities was a echo or a fragment of her father who was very much the villain in her life. And the collective consciousness got together and kicked him out of the mind. And so I remember as a small child really rooting for Tegan to have the strength to, like, not let herself be possessed and taken over, but instead, you know, fight back against this other part of her mind. And I'm incredibly invested in that. And I think that's part of why I didn't realize that Kinda and Snake Dance were a pair, because I, I was so locked into this personal mental battle in kinda that then when i watched snake dance i was fascinated by the possession but i i didn't link them together because you never get back to that struggle between tegan and tegan and i think that is why kinda looking at it now is my favorite tegan inside her head is just so interesting to me um and the idea of being driven mad within one's own mind um is something i have thought about now for you know 40 some years uh, of knowing my mom and uh, snake dance as a kid was much more effective. But now watching back, Kind is really the gold in this for me. So you've recalibrated through age, like the one was more resonant as a younger person and now the other one is? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think I had the emotional connection to it watching Kinda very vaguely. But this time watching through it, I realized that like I was sort of one with my mother's struggle when I watched that. Um, and I don't get that opportunity very often. It's interesting. A, a, a very personal connection and kind of a non-temporal connection with Dr. Yu. Two or three <laughs> different directions of story going on mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Revisiting this reminded me of a couple different things. One, that I think that 80s is kind of unfairly judged against 60s and 70s Doctor Who, I think as we pointed out in this discussion, Doctor Who in the 80s really began to experiment and tell different types of stories. And experimentation usually results in some failures. So generally, I I look at 80s Doctor Who as uh, something that's really trying to push the envelope. And when it fails, it fails spectacularly. Uh, But when it succeeds, you get something like Kinda. And I think Kinda is worth a warriors of the deep, <laughs> you know, um, it's worth the time in the Ronnie. I think I, I may be setting up a false scenario in which you have to have terrible episodes in order to have good ones. But I, I think it is a product of experimentation often. So uh, the, the two stories from the classic series really just seem brighter and shinier to me now than they did before after visiting them again. And I thought pretty highly of them to begin with. Cradle the Snake, meh, not so much. I mean, for my part, uh, of course, I love Kinda. Kinda is is one of the highlights of Doctor Who for me, um, which is a little funny to say because it's so unrepresentative of Doctor Who. Uh, you know, back in the day, people would always uh, talk about City of Death as being, oh wow, that's the greatest that Doctor Who has ever been, and I always felt that was a little uncomfortable because it is great. 
but it's not very Doctor Who. You know what I mean? It, it like it is doing things that Doctor Who doesn't normally do, and Kenya is very much in that form as well. This is something that Doctor Who does not traditionally do. Um, this particular thing is very interesting and weird, and it's a little outside the realm of normal Doctor Who. So, I mean, having said that, this was great to revisit the Snake Dance, Cradle of the Snake. It For me, it seems like they're sort of Xeroxes of each other, like Snake Dance is kind of a Xerox of Kinda, and Cradle of the Snake is a, is a fuzzier Xerox of, of Snake Dance, but I enjoyed all three, even if I thought they were less interesting. And partly, I think it's that you can only take this concept of the Mara so very far without getting out side of what Doctor Who actually does. I was, leaving aside the narrative stuff, I was trying to determine what the Mara actually was and how people described it and what it did. And so in Kinda, Pana says that the Mara is chaos, despair, and suffering. What we see happen is that it makes Tegan act kind of flirtatiously toward Eris, and that it makes Eris crazy about the idea of obedience and control obedience freedom through destruction um this is dark side's anti-life that kind of thing and snake dance it's uh, a little bit more about mental terror it's a just a little bit of terrorizing um liz sladen's husband and the fortune teller <laughs> and then by the time we get to cradle of the snake it's a bit more of a physical thing like i'm gonna i'm a giant snake and i'm gonna eat you He's kind of like a giant televangelist at the end. (laughs) He really is. Yeah, it's an anti-Buddhist televangelist or whatever. So I think it uh, the idea of what the Mara was maybe kind of fuzzy at the beginning and just became increasingly fuzzy and took on the, uh, the lineaments of a conventional Doctor Who villain toward the end. So I guess what that means is that there's room for another Mara story, a better one that really does justice to what the concept is calvin what do you think yeah like i said i had kind of a weird uh personal emotional things where i I didn't like kinda very much when i first saw it but that the whole mara thing has really grown on me over the years um i think it would be interesting to see the mara with a different doctor because it's so hooked into the fifth doctor and tegan so yeah it'd be kind of interesting to see like what the seventh doctor, the eighth doctor would do with like if they had to deal with the Mara again. Or Jody Whitaker. Or any of them, yeah. Well, the sixth doctor is kind of the Mara regeneration of, of the doctor. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> he still had a remnant from Cradle of the Snake in him and explains his troubling regeneration. Well, thank you all for- listening to another episode of get off my world we are fresh regenerated post-pandemic and ready to go and so next month's episode is going to be an episode about our bad reputation no i'm sorry taylor smith's bad reputation no i'm sorry it's going to be about doctor who's bad reputation and we're going to talk about a couple of very ill thought of 1960s Doctor Who stories. Which ones? Well, you're going to have to find out when you tune in next month to join me, Pat Harrigan, Ariel Pinkerton, Joshua English Scrimshaw, and Kelvin Hatley. On Get Get Off My World!
Sorry, I, I usually am a little better prepared than this, but I I forgot to... Well, hey, there was a big fucking global pandemic, so uh, <laughs> that, that occurred. 